All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. Today's guest is Alvin Law. In the early 60s, over 13,000 babies around the world were born with deformities as a direct result of the use of thalidomide, a drug that was prescribed to relieve morning sickness but had horrendous side effects on developing fetuses. Alvin Law was one of them. In his case, just a couple of tiny pills were enough to cause him to be born without arms. However, there's more to keynote speaker Alvin Law than what's missing. He's living proof that removing the word can't from your vocabulary is something to which we can all aspire. Alvin's adopted parents raised him to not just survive, but to exceed expectations. It was a natural and essential part of their cultured home. Alvin took what to some may have been a life-hindering part of his development, and instead made it a message of hope, motivation and a lust for life. And that's the message that Alvin ultimately brings, to look beyond what you think is possible, past what you think is missing in your life, and to dream big, to do more, to be more. The only true obstacle, after all, is the labels we have accepted and allowed to define our lives, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the people and situations around us. Most of the time, these labels are lies and created by ourselves and we need to overcome the BS that's associated with them. He's living proof that removing the word can't is possible and it's something which we should all aspire to do. He's played a direct role in raising over $225 million for charity. In this interview, we discuss his story, how he learnt to use his toes for everyday use, finding true confidence, how he overcame limitations to achieve his dreams and not allow labels to define us. And now, let's get to the interview. What I loved about your show was you showed people that you can be happy with whoever you are. It didn't matter what your perceived label or limitations where that you know that you could be who you wanted to be enjoy life and do it it could be a disability it could be a label that you've given yourself that's complete bs you know that's self-perceived only but you've said you know that instead of the question who you are you always get what happened to you and you know and you've made You've turned your life around and said it was the happiest thing that you that happened to you. Could you go into a little bit about that and how your experience with flamillamide and how it's affected you and, you know, why you're so well known and why you change people's lives? Sure. Well, uh, what's fascinating is when the Goldcast video came out and they did all of the production, I had no input into anything that they presented. Um, all we sent them, my, my wife did, was some still pictures they could use. And if you've seen it and the people that may not have seen it will want to watch it now, I didn't even think about that title, What's Your Label? That actually came out from a talk I was giving at a boys and girls club 
fundraiser. I'm not sure if you have them in the UK, but boys and girls clubs are very, very uh, widespread in North America. And they obviously sound like they are. They're a safe spot for kids to go after school or in the evenings when they don't have any resources at home. And most of these kids would fall under the category of that big new word called marginalized. And it's real. So when I talk about these kids, I've never been comfortable with people's sympathy. I understand why it happens. I acknowledge it. But I prefer the word empathy because they're two completely different words. And it's putting an understanding behind the story of somebody else, uh, being sensitive to that. But also, I'm very, very um, honest with these kids in particular when I say, look, you've had uh, challenges in your past. Me too. You do not have what I had, and that's the benefit of a loving, caring, devoted family. I acknowledge that. But I also believe that no matter what kind of upbringing we've had, and psychologists may disagree, our future is not set. So when I talk about changing their label, I'm basically saying change your mindset of what you call yourself. So many people call themselves negative pictures of themselves. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm stupid. I'm from the projects. I'm from uh, a small town. My, I'm poor. I'm a single parent. All these labels are fine, but they don't necessarily define who we are. The greatest gift my parents gave me, and this is a huge part of the story, because my parents were actually not my birth family. My birth parents uh, gave me up when I was five days old. So I could also describe myself as literally being homeless before I was a week old. Now, why that's emotional is not what people think. They get sad. They go, oh boy, a baby who was homeless? I had no idea. My first absolute memory in my memory banks of my mind is sitting in my basement in my little town and my little home in a place called Yorkton, Saskatchewan, sewing buttons on rags with a needle and thread in my toes because my mother insisted on me doing tons of manual labor tasks to perfect my dexterity with my toes. But she wasn't doing it out of vanity. She was doing it out of practicality because my parents were survivors of the depression. My father was a decorated World War II veteran. In other words, having no arms was not a challenge because they'd been through lots of them. And that was a huge mindset. Yeah, and they sound um, like they were amazing people. I mean, do you ever hold any sort of resentment towards the attitude back at that point where disabled kids were put to like specialist institutions, that the attitudes towards disabilities back then? Because unfortunately, it's not changed as much as we'd like in certain societies. I mean, there's definitely a lot more like care and resources available for disabled kids nowadays, but... Do you, you know how did you deal with any sort of emotional baggage that you might have come because you've gone to a loving set of family siblings you know they've encouraged you motivated you but how do you deal with any sort of resentment from for the situation or did you ever acknowledge anything because that's all you remember was this loving family well i think the biggest answer to that excellent question is it was the time you accepted it, right? We can talk about prejudice against black people. Mm. Uh, I live in a Canada. We're next door to the United States, the hotbed of, uh, with due respect, blame for colonialism, right? I mean, let's be honest. We have a history of stupidity. And I think looking back on it in the 60s and 70s, I grew up in this community. And yes, part of it was in a loving home. 
But a bigger part of it was just a small town mentality. We knew everybody. So you didn't get people bullying each other because somebody would find out and they would be taken care of. And I don't mean by the end result, but just people got self-tuned. You know what I mean? Were there people that were jerks? Of course there were. But most of the people in my community already knew me. It was when I would actually go to the hospitals, which was a regular occurrence for me. I had to go every year. Part of the downside of being adopted was I legally became uh, still a owner of owned by the government of Canada. So I, uh, mom and dad, had to acknowledge that if the government asked me and my mom to go to a hospital in Toronto and I was there for three, four, five weeks, we couldn't say no. That was part of the agreement that they would give me up for research, really, on artificial limbs. Clearly, you can't fix something if it's not broken, but that was the model of the time. Now, let's jump to today where I think you're right. I appreciate that honesty. I think certain people get uncomfortable around certain other individuals. I think it happens if you don't like obese people, you're not comfortable with them. If you don't like colored people or ethnic people, you're uncomfortable with them. If you don't like people that have no arms, I mean, imagine it, brother. I'll go into a restaurant and I'll take off my shoe and have a sandwich or a, or a pint with my foot. Some people look at that and go, that's amazing. And other people reading their body language go, oh, my God, that's disgusting. My lesson from that is I can't change people's opinion of me. All I can do is run my own opinion of myself. And I've tried to be out there not to be bold and say, well, I have a right to be in this restaurant putting my foot on the table because I don't believe in rights as much as I believe that we're very privileged. And I think we're really finding that in the middle of this uh, pandemic we're going through right now is a lot of people are freaking out because they've had their rights taken away. Well, too bad, so sad. This is about that bigger picture and everybody matters more than the one. I love that because that's what I particularly love about your your talks and your energy was you love life you've got such a passion for life i mean i i'm white i go to say the gym but i've got keloid scarring on my back and my shoulder where my body overproduces um collagen so i have like kind of red lumps you know like benign tumors in certain places like on both mm. sites and i notice people's reaction to that it's it's different it's weird it's it's strange and I, some people are like yeah it's fine girlfriends haven't you know don't care but random people do and it's that moment you kind of catch people and we we're kind of i don't know it's at least we're now in a better society where we don't say it as much when I, mean, I come from scottish highlands and i know what you mean about everybody knows each other and you know you're you'd have a mother in each street to tell you off if you're misbehaving yeah exactly you know i mean <laughs> you, you couldn't get away with anything i mean you kind of got used to just people sorting out problems and speaking and dealing with it but how it must have been really hard at that point to have that label from the, the government that you were owned by the government because you've got this amazing philosophy which i absolutely love of i'm not disabled i'm just different how do you keep that motivation when the world can be a shitty place, especially right now? You know, where does this drive and love come from just to be your amazing self? So there was an incident that happened to me because by the time I was 18 years old, I obviously had a very successful upbringing in the point that by 18 years old, I was ready to leave my hometown and and run out into the busy, big, ugly world. And I moved 800 miles or 
1,200 kilometers to the city that I now live in. Now, I haven't lived here since then, but this was 1978. And I went into a college of about 4,000 students. It's now an actual university, which means that it was never one of those, you know, really bad colleges. It's actually a very, very recognized uh, institution of higher education. And I studied broadcasting. I, I went into broadcasting. I, I wanted to be a disc jockey. And uh, in that group of other students who wanted to be broadcasters, there was sort of a, a kind of a commonality. We weren't everyday, average, normal people. We were eclectic people. We were people that wanted to be on the air, people that wanted to be behind the camera, people that were creative, people that wanted to be journalists, people that wanted to find the truth. You know, that kind of person. So they weren't everyday average people. But what I knew was that I was almost at a place where I could be my own person. I could invent myself. And one of the things that I had learned, you know, in the few months leading up to my high school graduation, which in Canada was grade 12, so I would have been 17, 18, was I had fun. I mean, I loved to party. My parents loved to party. They weren't, you know, crazy, wacky people with, you know, uh, heavy metal on the, on, the, uh, on the radio player or on the record player. In fact, it was more like, you know, they, my dad loved to watch Lawrence Welk or listen to Tommy Dorsey. The point is they were life lovers. So when I got to college, I kind of immigrated towards this bunch of folks that love to have a good time. One day I was out partying with some friends and to be quite blunt, I smoked my first joint and I got high. And I thought that was that evil stuff that my parents who were people of great faith, you know, never, never touched the evil weed. Well, in fact, it was a beautiful moment that I shared ironically with a guy named Mike who was from Liverpool. Now, you can appreciate Mike's Liverpool accent was very charming, but Mike was a very eclectic guy, and he had brought with him from England to come to Canada with his family somewhere around 1,200 vinyl records, and all of them European music. And for the first time, I ever heard a guy named David Bowie. And when I heard that music, I did not like it. And when I saw his pictures, I thought, oh, my God, there's a flaming homosexual or what? And Mike said, you know, nobody really knows if David Bowie is homosexual or bisexual or trisexual. But what everybody that loves him knows is there's only one David Bowie. And he looked at me and they called me Toes. That was my nickname. And he said, Toes, you are one of a kind. Never, ever sell yourself out because there will only ever be one of you. Just be you. Be authentic and live your life. Those words changed my life. And that's a true story. I love that because they always say no matter where you are in the world, there's a Scottish guy and there's a guy from Liverpool. <laughs> you cannot escape. Like we are, we always seem to appear out of nowhere, and that's what I love about this kind of philosophy is there is no normal. I mean, I'm right. six foot three. I went to the hospital once to get a circulation issue fixed in my leg. And the guy told me people aren't meant to be my size. You know, I'm not meant to be six foot three, built like a brick shit house, and do jujitsu <laughs> and stuff. You know? And I was sitting there going, "Well, what is normal?" But you know what I mean? It's like, I, I this is what bugs me about people who see people with artificial limbs or limbs missing, or like I work in a university, so I see a lot of Nigerian, Indian students, etc. Come who have had facial scarring or they've been in fires and things like that. And they're all unique people with amazing stories and loves for life. And, you know, 
you if you get to know each of them so well. And I realized after years of working in this job, there is no such thing as normal. Mm. I come, you know, I come from the Highlands where to me, it, like the rest of the world is amazing. How, you know, is this the most dangerous thing we do is we assign a label as we judge each other against this perceived normal? You know, where does this normal come from? Because it's bullshit, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So that that I love your honesty, brother. That's what I'm I'm really enjoying about this dialogue. And I think I've always been that way, too. I measure my honesty because I have no joy in offending people at all. No joy at all. But let me take off to where uh, you were talking. This is a really fascinating example because I was born this way. So when I started using my feet, that was normal. Uh, but this was 1963, my first visual memory. I was born in 1960. There was no internet. There was no 24-hour news cycle. We lived in a small town where we had a radio station that played bad country music, a television station that was more about selling local product, and that was our media. So we weren't privy to the world media. In other words, my parents knew that I had no arms, duh, they also had no knowledge of what to do about that. But when they saw me use my feet, that's when they started focusing on the toes. Um, you know, it, it, it's fascinating. Just a quick side story. We are watching lots of television over here. I'm guessing you are too. And we were sailing through Netflix. And I'd never seen The World's Greatest Showman. You know, the musical with uh, P.T. Barnum, his story about the freaks. Isn't yeah. it interesting that in one generation, we went from having freaks inside shows to people employed. But even more importantly, I think where the rubber hit the road, brother, was really literally two wars. World War II and the Vietnam War reframed the image of people with serious physical harm. And we did not feel comfortable. It was just a society thing. We can't even relate to not having a limb. So when someone looks at me and says, you're disabled, you know, that's usually when I pull out my drumsticks and go, which part? I mean, I'm using an example, but you know what I mean? Hmm. That was the key element was we can talk about this on a higher level about what I call self-speak, how we talk to ourselves, what we call ourselves. There comes that label thing again. But I also think what we've learned is the media, and I'm not going to blame them because that's too easy. But let's remember the media, social media in particular, but the marketing companies are brilliant at making you look ugly making you feel stupid, making you feel inadequate. If you buy this cream, you can have beautiful skin. Yeah, I guess maybe, but what if you just look after yourself without the $40 tube of cream? You see what I mean? We get sucked into these things, and it's not because we're evil people. We just want to look good. We want to feel good, and we think we can buy it in a tube. You should be next door to America, where every second ad is a pharmaceutical telling you how you can feel better, but don't 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 worry about you've got to read those side effects. You know, you could die. You could lose your hair. You could lose your potency. You could lose everything. But this pill will make you better. You get the point. We've learned to be a quick fix society rather than a self-accepting one. I mean, because that's when we grew up, we were always taught that whatever we did, it didn't matter if you were first, second, ninth in a race or if, you know, whatever you could do, whatever your grades were, try your best. But that was, you know, my parents accepted that. And we were always taught that you, if you try your best, you get love for it. You know, it's not like you had to 
beat out the the top guy in your school or beat your brother in the grades you got or anything like that. We were accepted right. for the people we were. And I couldn't understand how I had friends who didn't have that as family. I just assumed that was normal. And it took me years before I seen the sort of the horrible side, like racism, sexism, and all these sorts mm-hmm. of things. I didn't realize, you know, I, I think I was had a, probably a cushy life, I suppose is a way you could put it. And I love the fact that your adopted parents made you so warm and friendly and they gave you so much love and that, that you didn't understand there was anything different about that, that you didn't see the, the shitty side of life for ages. Do you think yeah. the way they taught you to make your bed, to, you know, always tidy up your toys, to, you know, to treat you exactly as everybody else... And to make you learn the skills with your feet that a lot we would learn, you know, a lot of times older. Do you think that made you, they didn't make the disability a, a justification to feel sorry for yourself, but it empowered you? Or do you yeah. think that was always in you? Is that no, no, no. I, I, this, this is an excellent, excellent question, Ian, because or it's I, is it Ian or Ian? Uh, you can call me either, but uh, Ian, it's fine. Okay. I always, because I, I've got a friend who's I A N, and he gets real pissed off if you call him Ian because he's I N. Anyway, I, well, I've been called a lot worse by girlfriends. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna poke a little bit of a stick at the millennials, and I don't mean to poke any sticks because I don't like them. But one thing that I observed, this was just uh, what I do for my speaking career and my writing, is I try not to overthink things. My essence of my story is still the main subject of everything that I discuss because it is compelling, as we're discovering in this interview, and it is my life story, and I'm very, very proud of it. But one of the things that I've observed because I'm studying human energy and dynamics is about, um, well, my son was born in 1985, so it would have been around that time that people my age in my mid-20s were having children, and we were reflecting on the way that we were raised, and in my community, we were actually very uh, farming oriented. So a lot of my friends grew up on farms. So they were up at 4.30 in the morning, you know, milking cows or feeding chickens or tending to the herd, whatever they were doing. They had major jobs that they had to do at home. And I had my chores. And I learned how to do these things, like all my peers. Did they like getting up at 4.30 in the morning to milk the cows? No. So continuing with the metaphor, if that's what this is, when they decided to have their own children, they would get someone else to milk the cows because they didn't want to put their children through what they went through, missing the major link to what made them who they are today, made them independent. We took away kids' responsibilities because we came up with this stupid expression, the job of a child is to be a child. Yeah, until you're not, and then what do you do, right? My son grew up in a similar environment where he was expected to be accountable for his stuff. He had to keep his room clean. He had to vacuum himself. He had to learn how to do his own laundry. He had to learn how to cook. He had to learn how to clean. My wife was his stepmom. She was tough on him, just like my mom was tough on me. In other words, somewhere along the way, we decided to stop being tough on our kids. And now we wonder why they're suffering from resiliency skills, why they're suffering from mental health issues why there's safe zones in our universities to get away from controversial thoughts and ideas. That one really pisses me off because the whole idea of college and university is to explore all thought. And if one bothers you, then don't listen to it. I know that sounds old fashioned, but trust me, I'm not old fashioned. I'm in fact very current, but here's one more additive to that. 
doing things gives you self-esteem. Self-esteem doesn't come from buying the latest pair of shoes or having the newest purse or putting your makeup on. That's an addition to you. I, I think it's like a bonus. I like nice things too. But self-esteem is not born from stuff. Self-esteem is born from failure and from success. That's what gives us our, 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 our courage. That's what gives us our dignity. And that's what gives us our can-do attitude. I love that because that's how we were raised. It was, you know, you try it, you do it, you, you know, you try to tie the knot instead of somebody else doing it for you or you try making something, you know, or cooking dinner for the family. We were taught to kind of give it, to learn things and do things. And I, I like the way that you put that was how many kids nowadays don't even get to try anything there you know we live in a society where you can order food to, to come to your door you can order somebody to come pick you up take you somewhere you can even order a date online you know this is just a crazy time so you, they don't learn to actually look after themselves or to deal with themselves and do you think this is the worst thing facing men today is this kind of model coddling society that we've kind of created for them is that the worst kind of mindset that you know, it's the fixed mindset that somebody, there'll, there'll be a man that comes in and does something for somebody. We're not resilient. We're not self-reliant on ourselves. You know, I, I that's a very, I don't think I've ever heard that question in all the interviews I've ever done, put it quite that way. We have become a bit of a homogeneous culture. And I understand that, you know, we, we've had this culture shift where we're all equal. Men are equal to women and women are equal to men and women are fighting for equal pay for equal jobs. And I get all of that. It's all absolutely very, very important. Um, I think the problem is that men are men and women are women. And I will acknowledge, you know, sexuality, right? I, I'm very much behind the LBGTQ movement. I confess to not being as easily understandable about sex change. Or, or, you know, or gender change. That one, I still haven't quite figured out how to feel about that. But one of the things that I've learned about being who I am is masculinity does not come from how tough you are, from how many tires you can change, from how big a barrel you can roll, or for how much you can do the man's work. You know, it's interesting, in our home, my wife is actually a real stud. She's very strong. She has these big, broad shoulders. She should have been a, um, a rower. She's got that kind of body. And by the way, she's real hot, even at 60 years old. She's, she's totally hot. And when I met her, I honestly, it, it was 1991. I was a single dad of a, of a little boy who was five at the time, and I was struggling. And I met Darlene, and when I first spotted her, I couldn't stop looking at her. I met her at a conference where she was the co-chair, and I was the closing speaker. So it was a professional greeting. And she literally said to me, you're staring. And I said, I'm not staring. And then she added, and you're drooling, too. And I, of course, made a joke. I wasn't drooling. Well, maybe I was. But the fact is, I know why I was attracted to my wife. She's beautiful. Why was she attracted to me? Well, it wasn't the biceps. I mean, I admire physical beauty. No, no question about it. I admire. I even admire male physical beauty. And I'm heterosexual. Because I think it's wonderful if a man or a woman can work out, go to a gym, be a bodybuilder. Good for you. But character does not come from the perfect physical form. Character comes from the form of who we are in our soul. And I know that sounds real warm and fuzzy, but that is exactly how I feel. And I think that's where we've had to kind of, in my opinion, I think we've done ourselves a disservice by suggesting that everybody's alike. 
No, we still need men and we still need women. And not just to procreate, but because there is a beauty in that, that, that difference. Even if it's you know, a gay couple and you're a man and a man or a woman and a woman, there's still a masculine and, and feminine kind of, a, of, a, of an attitude towards the couple, right? So in other words, let's not worry so much about what men should be doing. Let's just worry about what we are doing in our own mindset of who we are. Because yeah, I mean, one of the questions I used to always ask was, define masculinity from your mm. from your viewpoint. And I think I question. had, at the time, I think there was something like 75 episodes, and only one person ever mentioned masculinity from the feminine energy, from the feminine side point. Mm. And that, that kind of blew me away because, mm. I mean, I do jiu-jitsu, and that's considered manly and great tough to do a martial art. But I also love podcasts, you know, and internet stuff, which is supposedly geeky. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I love singing to myself badly. But I would never say, you know what I mean? But it's like, who defines what is manly? Who defines what is right and wrong? I mean, because I find your talks amazing and I see how much they change people's lives and you're changing these kids' lives to let them understand that they they don't have to label themselves, they can accept themselves as who they are. And, you know, I would consider you an amazing guy for doing that. But who's to say that, you know, you see these guys, six packs and big biceps, I'm sure they have just as many, like, weaknesses to themselves or worries. We're all good. We're all bad. You know, we're all, we've all got that capacity for redemption and things like that. I mean, I'm not religious, but I think we've all got that ability to be good and bad. We've all got that ability to blame ourselves, hate ourselves but also to have something unique that can change the world. And is that where your sort of philosophy of changing the label from victim to victor comes in? You know, is that how you kind of teach people to see the good in them that can change the world? Absolutely. And, and in fact, I, 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 you know, we, we talked before this interview started uh, that, you know, I'm welcome to promote product. I'm not that kind of guy. Although I'm very proud of my book, Alvin's Laws of Life. I'm very proud of the work I've done. People can see the videos that we've been speaking of at my website, which I'm sure you'll promote at alvinlaw.com. But what's interesting is the book that I wrote is now uh, 13 years old. And I'm not an author, really. I am an author technically, but I'm not an author by full-time trade. I'm a full-time speaker, although right now I'm not getting paid to talk to my wife in the kitchen. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is that I think a big part of, of, of this whole arena is very much about this notion of uh, of my next book. And my next book is, I don't know what it's going to be called for sure, but I'm using a working title because that's how my brain works, of the word insecurity. And and I and I and I think insecurity is is showing itself in in spades right now across the planet. And I think it's dividing. Uh, it's dividing people between those that are secure in their place and those that are freaking out. Now, I want to be very sensitive to the notion that lots of people have a good reason to be freaking out. You know, my son, for example, if he lost his job, he would be in a bad place because where we live is an expensive city. So I'm not trying to discount the reality of our concerns and insecurity. But our insecurity as human beings comes from um, a place that has been, uh, as I talked about a minute ago, we've kind of bought into this, right? And our insecurity is what drives most of the reasons we do what we do. It drives a lot of people to use steroids to make their muscles bigger. 
it draws a lot of people into the world of drugs because they can forget about how bad their lives are. Insecurity drives a lot of reasons why we have um, the Me Too movement, which was a perfect example of, I think a lot of men were sweating because they realized, did I treat a woman properly? I don't know. All I know is this idea of how we feel as human beings has to come from a place that we have taught ourselves to feel comfortable in our skin. I, I really mean this. I, I've got, a, I've got a, a very close relative who uh, shares his life with a woman who's a bodybuilder, all right? Her body doesn't do anything for me, but she lives in a, in, worlds, in, a, in a world where that's what they do. They aren't all vain people. They aren't all full of themselves assholes, but that's just not my thing. I believe that one of the things that I've tried to teach, especially kids, is I've already covered this once before, but I love saying it again. The best gift you can give yourself is just loving who you are. And we have to stop looking at the television or looking on social media or worrying about what friends we have on Facebook or what's the newest uh, carnation of social media. I mean, you know, when we went through this generation of when people started taking pictures of themselves, you know, there, I read something somewhere that uh, an unofficial statistic is children will have had a million photos taken of them on a device by the time they are five years old. A That's million. Ter it's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm suggesting is I'm not putting these people down for wanting to take a selfie. But here's the problem. All of this distraction is taking away from what I've always had as a talent, and that is mindfulness. All right? I'm always conscious of what's going on around me. I can't hold my device and look at it every minute. All right? I have to be aware of what's going on. And I'm conscious always of how people are watching me. So let's use a really perfect example. If someone looked at me from across a restaurant with an evil stare, I have a choice of my reaction, right? I can choose to wave and smile and say, hey, buddy, or I can give him the uh, equivalent of the middle toe and tell him where to go. Either one makes sense, but only one makes sense to me. And if we're the kind of person that has to respond with our metaphorical evil middle finger to everything in the world, we may want to do an attitude review. Because to go through life that angry and miserable, I've got to tell you, I can't even imagine what that looks like. You know, what? who you're talking to today, Ian, is the real deal. And I know you know that. But a lot of people have even suggested that I'm just a really good facade, right? I look good. Look at what I do. I play the drums. I play the piano. What a story. Hey, man, I am really, literally a lover of life every single day. Because that's what I picked up from your videos. I mean, I... I look around for a lot of people to interview and mm. I see a lot of like fake bravado, you know, some real mm -hmm. bullshit and I get suggested people to interview the whole time and you kind of like, no, they're just, they're fake. You know, they have that, it's all talk, but there's nothing behind it, you know? And that's why I loved your stuff. It was, you could feel it was you as a person. Every time I seen you, you were very straight down the line, but you were very consistent. You, you talked your life through you know i seen that like when i used to go to the gym these guys who be built like brick shit houses and you'd be like oh they're amazing and you know people are like i really want to look like them but when you got to know them they were the, some of the most you know they would be worried themselves thinking they didn't look right they would be hating themselves and ju judging themselves against the next guy and i used to you know lift really heavy and then somebody would come and use that as their warm-up weight and i would go <laughs> hey, wait, hey, wait a minute here you're not meant to do that and uh, you know you realize that you, what you're going through 
might be amazing to somebody you know that might be their dream life you don't know what the struggle is that the next person's going through and i think this is a problem is society you know social media tv entertainment has created this sort of fake idea this mindset of what is normal you know like the two and a half kids the house the beautiful wife or the you know you have to have the kid who's perfect who can't like geeky stuff like dungeon and dragons or whatever you know and and that's what i find it's really strange is we still accept that even though we know it's mm-hmm. bullshit and this is what i love about you is that you were like you say the real deal that you kind of took something which could have destroyed you that could have made you you know shy away and hide from people like i used to do my chest and my back and stuff like that and now i kind of go in a change rooms and if people ask yeah i'll chat about it and if somebody looks at me i'll kind of go you know but at least buy me dinner first or something you know but i'm completely straight but i'll make a joke about it yeah yeah and that's what i find is funny is it's their issue i don't mind somebody looking at it but how do you deal with the looks you know do you was it awkward at first you know that kind of the ignorance that some people have this sort to stare at you or how did you learn to accept that and you know kind of bounce off it in this amazing alvin way that you do well the first answer is that's how i was raised i know i keep reverting back to this but i think it was a huge element of my upbringing uh, I tell a funny, a funny little anecdote when people are, are, are doing interviews, for example, they'll say, when did you start speaking? And I go, 1963. And they go, wait, you were born in 1960. You couldn't have started speaking that early. I said, yeah, I did. Mom would get people coming up to her and say, what happened to your little boy? And she'd say, ask him. He's not an idiot. And I started explaining this at a very early age, which meant I acknowledged my difference. And I was okay with that. My mother, in fact, uh, we did not necessarily close the loop on the story of the government ownership. Um, That's not exactly how it was presented to me, per se. That is retrospective thinking. But the reality is when I would go away to one of these hospitals and I would be there. And by the way, I didn't get to stay with my mom. My mom would literally drop me off and go home and I'd be there all by myself for weeks at a time. Mom compared what I was doing to my father fighting in World War II. I mean, that's what she used as an example, because a lot of my parents' friends were veterans. A lot of my dad's friends were good friends. They were in the war together. A lot of them would go to the Legion, and I would hear war stories, right? All those reminiscing tales of, of horrible things. So I knew my dad was a soldier, okay? I would then, therefore, be very proud that I was a soldier, too. Look what I'm doing. I'm going to the hospitals, giving myself up for these people who don't care about me in favor of what? I'm not even going to use artificial arms because I don't have any, but that was the mindset. Okay. So that was a big part of what was going on back then. But as I got older, what I started to recognize was I could be the really good example for people that are not interested in judging themselves by how they look, but they're kind of on that fence. They're not sure. Are people going to love them for who they are? Are they going to like the way that they can be? And what I learned was, believe it or not, This is a great filter, Ian. If people don't want to like me, fine. I have no time or energy to spend trying to befriend someone who's an asshole. All right? So when you live in that kind of mindset, two things happen. You filter away the jerks, but more than anything, you attract the really good people. If you were to put all my friends in a room together, you would notice they all have one thing in common. And I hate to be sounding like a broken record here, man, but they all love life. I've got a buddy that I sent him a, 
I sent, uh, I sent him a, a post uh, one day of a of a guy doing uh, mountain biking on a mountain trail with a 500 foot drop on either side of an 18 inch wide path. And I sent this to my pal and I said, hey, check this out. And he sends me back a note. He says, oh, I've been on that trail. These are the kind of friends I've got, man. I'm not going to get on a mountain bike and go on the top of a mountain ridge. I'm not going to ski a black diamond run. I'm not going to go diving to the bottom of the ocean. But I know people that do all those things. So I surround myself with people that are not about vanity, but about living. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. And it's, it's a great way to be. And it's that is kind of partly why I created the podcast. Was I, mm. I was going, I can still remember it. I was in a pub with f- friends from the village I was in and I was really unhappy thinking there has to be more to life than this. You know, I was doing mm. a job I wasn't really enjoying. I was dating somebody that wasn't really making me happy. And I thought... There has to be more to it than this. And then when this is where I kind of found podcasts. And then I found amazing people who changed my life. You know, like the kind of Lewis House, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan. Mm. They inter- they kind of showed me that there's more to life. And then as I started finding more and more amazing people, I, I, I found more and more amazing people like yourself who show as, you know, like you've made, the world has become a lot smaller because of podcasts, because of social media. And it lets people like me who are in these dark places who are really upset or feeling inferior that there is more to life that we can have that spark but yet also brings us closer together how do you build that strength of friendship you know is it just you being you and loving life and just being who you are and not faking it so to speak or what well, kind of things have you learned about friendships over the years well i think first of all um you need to know something about who i am in canada uh, and, and it's very important, but even more importantly, who I am in uh, where I'm from. Uh, I became an unexpected celebrity, uh, you know, not Richard Branson scale or, or Paul McCartney scale. But I, I was uh, my, my music really defined me. And I think that is probably where this all began was I just wanted to be a musician. And, and I, it's not exactly answering your question directly, but I'll get there in a second. And I think what happened was I was kind of floating around, not sure who I was. I could not play sports. I really wanted to play sports because all of my sporty friends looked like not only were they popular and had the cool and hot looking gals, but they just seemed to be that much more into life. Right. We've covered that off a couple of times now. I wanted to be one of them. But other than the obvious sport of football, uh, I could not. Uh, tell you how much I loved football when I was a kid. My father was actually born and raised in Northampton in England and came to Canada in the 20s to uh, right. to immigrate. So, um, you know, he was a very good football player. He was a good rugby player. He was an ex-professional boxer. My dad was athletic. My older brothers, natural children of my parents were athletic. And then there was me. So I felt a little bit like that. I was out of water. I, I What was I going to do? I was not artistic. I couldn't draw very well. But one day I tried playing a piano and I had a little fun with it. 
and I would get a little bit of the novelty act, of course, of, uh, of um, you know, basically, um, you know, telling people that I was going to be a musician someday. And of course, that ended up with, ha ha, you have no arms. How could you possibly be a musician? Uh, my mom took me to a lady to get lessons on piano. And the lady basically said, why would I do something so silly when you just look at your foot and see how short your toes are? You'll never play the piano. So that took me off kilter as well. But what changed everything was when I was invited, and it's a longer story and it's a very dramatic story, but I won't go into the, the long one today with you. But essentially, I ended up in band after a very visionary band director working with a couple of teachers at the high school in my little town, mounted a trombone on the side of a wooden chair that I played with my right foot. And in 1978, I was the number one ranked high school jazz trombone player in Canada. I was the best. Now, am I bragging? No. But what it taught me was the only thing separating the bottom of the pile to the top of the pile is your personal effort, dedication, and what habits you learn to be the best. When you get competing with those people, you would think that they're wicked, evil people. But in fact, no. In my circle, all the musicians that I knew were awesome people. So then I started thinking, okay, well, if these people like me for who I am, then what I think we all have in common is we just have to find something that brings us together. So in this particular time, I think it's a really good example. You know, people are feeling apart. Yes, they are. But ironically, we're all in the same space. We're all in the same place. But more than anything, I think we're starting to find that we need to be around people. Human beings weren't meant to live in vacuums or in caves. So I think we're starting to understand really the value of our friendships now, the, 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 the loyalty of these people. And that's what's been my judge all along is I got to be known on television for playing the drums with my feet. And that introduced me to other musicians who played music and even really famous bands. And it was just that kind of thing where I reveled in it, not the celebrity, but the people that had achieved great things. I had a fantastic, fascinating conversation with Ray Charles when he was alive. And I'm not name dropping, but, you know, we're sitting in a room together and you can tell people are watching us going, look at that. A blind man talking to an armless drummer. What a picture, right? Exactly. The only difference is that's not what defines us. We're both musicians. Uh, and see, that's the problem is people are seeing what's not there rather than what is yeah. there. Um, and we've all got something inside of us, all of us, every one of us. That's that insecurity question, right? And how do we do that? Well, we just do it. I mean, I've been bugging people every day. I've been bugging people on social media. What'd you do today? Did you do anything today? You know, I always talked about, oh, if I only had time to learn the piano or learn to play the guitar or learn how to cook or learn how to clean or learn how to sew. Well, get at it because this is the perfect time to learn your skills, develop your confidence and be a better person. Because the world is basically on pause right now with this pandemic yeah. and it's a perfect time to learn that skills and I've started trying to play the guitar again and yeah, let's just say it. I suck at it right now, but I know I can get better and I know that I can jump on and find an amazing community of people. But I can also go and get like a meetup.com group, well, when we're allowed back out, where you can meet like-minded people who, yeah. are, who want to motivate and encourage you. And I've made some amazing friends for like through jiu-jitsu who I play football with and mm -hmm. go for a drink with and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't realize this was available because we were always taught you just accept what you're given. You know, you try to fit into the stereotype of 
a guy from the Highlands or a guy from Canada or a guy from, you know, your local, wherever you are. And this podcast has opened my mind up. And you're the sort of guy whose story would have blown me away because you would have taught me back then that I could accept who I was, that I was, I had a lot of good things about me, that I wasn't maybe as cool and hip as some of my other cooler friends but I had a lot to give. And I think a lot of young guys struggle with that. We think we're missing something. We're incomplete, that we're, we're not banging 50 chicks and we're not hitting, getting blazing drunk every night. And I think that's the, the lovely thing about your material. You teach guys that you're complete, you're whole as you are. Because you, you've got this lovely, um, amazing philosophy of you don't hold you you know you can't change what happened to you but you can change your reaction to it yes. and accept these things and I, I think that mindset blew me away i really wish i'd known it 10 15 years ago but i had my own journey to find it yeah and you know you said something ian i hate to interrupt you man but now is a perfect time to say this that is exactly it if we were all clones it would be an awfully boring world and we're all on our journey to the truth and let's be blunt about this how a 21-year-old sees the world right now compared to this 59-year-old man you're talking to in Canada is completely different. I've had 59 years to refine my thinking. I've had 59 years to make mistakes that I've corrected. I've had 59 years to deal with the choices I've made. And sometimes when we're young, we get sucked into things because it looks so good. You know, I want to pick on somebody for a second because this is a cautionary tale. Can anybody in the world tell me anything the Kardashians have actually done? You'd be lucky. Well, see what I mean? They've got one of the highest rated television programs on the air. Why is that? I've often wondered myself. Yeah. I've tried. I think it's because you can, you can look at them as characters rather than people. You know, I mean, you can kind of, you can almost look at them negatively and think, oh, I'm glad it's not me. But, Maybe. I don't know. I have, I've often wondered about that. How well, we I think a part of it is, and I, and, and I want to share an experience that I had that really was um, so incredible. It, it, it was something that, that I, I had no idea how it was actually going to affect me. And that was when I had the benefit. And by the way, I would really encourage one more time, and I, I'm sure you'll tell people this in your post to material here. But I was very blessed to be a drummer in a video on Channel 4 England, if people are going, oh, I remember this, there was a three-minute video that Channel 4 England produced for the 2016 Rio Paralympics. And it yep. was shown all across the United Kingdom for several months leading up to the Games. It was actually shown in the opening ceremonies in Rio. And one of my favorite things that happened was uh, we recorded the soundtrack at Abbey Road Studios. So because I'm 59 years old, I know what that means. Some young people may not, but of course, I'm old enough to remember the Beatles coming out. I remember Pink Floyd. I remember all of the great bands that recorded at Abbey Road. So can you picture me at 56 years old, sitting behind a drum kit with a pair of headphones on, direct communication with the recording booth, and I'm just about to lay down the main drum track for a three-minute video that is going to be shown all around the world. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I get here? And I can give you one simple answer, and that was patience. I think we just need to be more patient as a society. 
We're a fast food generation. We've learned that we want immediate success. But here is the key to everything, Ian. This is, this is the gold mine that I want to leave with your audience today. We need to live in an absolute genuine sense of gratitude. Because we live in a world that tells us we're not enough. We're, we're, we're not this. We're not that. What about what we are? You know, less is more. How about that idea? I learned to be thankful for having my life. And I mean this. This is not to, to just sound good. When you have no arms, you either lament that for your entire life and spend it blaming the world, or you celebrate the fact that you can use your feet, you can use your legs, and you have health. And more than anything, you have the love of family. I mean, my God, man, I am so blessed. My wife and I were married in 1993. I can't believe it. I can't believe we're still together. I can't believe in when I was in high school and I never had any action at all that I'm with this absolutely sensuous, beautiful woman who doesn't care if I've got no arms because I know how to be, let's put it this way, a real man because that's the essence of who I am. Because that's what I love about, like I was looking through your social media the other day and it was like you could either the proper true love there you know it was that connection and I've I've had it a couple of times in my life and I've been in bad relationships as well where they weren't the right person for me and when I seen that you kind of you learn to see it in other people you learn to understand it in other people so how do you find these people I mean is this going back to like the friendship thing of you know you just love life and you attract the right people into your life or you know like what advice would you give to new like new dads or people in new relationships what have you learned about what makes a relationship work because you two seem to have this kind of perfect relationship what you know i mean you're very accepting of each other's faults and you're very accepting of each other's like bonuses and the only I mean, the only thing I would have said about the, the drumming thing was the outfit they put you in was ah. terrible. <laughs> it was supposed to be a recreation of a kind of a 30s theme, right? With the music. That was the uh, idea. I, I just I, ha I had to say that. I, 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 I know we were going into a sort of beautiful moment of like about relationships and that just now. Yeah. And I just thought, but yeah, geez, that was, they didn't do you any favors. So, like, so but, I, I, I'm going to answer this by saying it's okay if the crowd that you hang out with is vain. But just be good people. You know, I, 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 I learned a great deal. This is the absolute truth. One of my nephews, my, my, my brother John, my oldest brother, is going to be 88 this summer. So that'll give you a sense of age in my life. And, uh, and two of my nephews, actually, uh, are, are, were. They're older now, but they were extremely talented rugby players. And I was always intrigued when I got invited to go watch a game. And then because I was so fun, you know, let's be honest about this. Sometimes I would act up. You know, I'd put a pint between my toes and drain it with one swig and the guys would cheer and laugh and go, way to go. There's nothing wrong with that. Come on. You know, it's OK to be silly and goofy as long as we're not hurting anybody, others, anyone else's feelings. But I use the rugby as an example of how it's the perfect example. You spend an hour or two beating the shit out of each other. And then you spend the next two hours after that, both teams going to the pub for a pint. That is what life should be as a symbol. We are all competitive, but we will attract the kind of people we want to attract in our life if we carry the right energy. Let's put it this way. You get what you put out. So if you walk around being angry and hostile and mean, that's who you'll attract into your life. If even on social media, you know, when we see all these criticisms and all these railings and rants, that's a reflection of your true self. Now, you may feel that way, but you don't necessarily have to say it. You know, we sometimes have to learn some tact. 
But I think the irony of this is there was a thing that when I was growing up was supposed to be a negative. And that was a thing called cliques, you know, cliques. Uh, oh, yeah. The little groups that hang out together, the the, the football clique or the, the beauty department clique or the mechanics clique, any of these cliques that were all supposed to be alike. You know, why is that wrong? I think we need to be around like-minded people. But I also think the key to this is we have to be around people that are sensitive to our, our world. So whenever I tell somebody this advice in a, in a program, if I'm working with somebody, um, I would say, you know, if you're feeling like you've got something missing in your life, volunteer now again now is not a practical time but volunteer you know go to a homeless shelter go to a pet shelter go to a seniors facility go visit a legion hall go where there are good people and you will find more good people to be friends with i love that because it like attracts like and yep. you know because that's what always worried me was i had friends who kind of who seem to have it all and they be worrying about something so inconsequential about like they didn't have the right car or they didn't have mm -hmm. you know they couldn't take their girlfriend to the same place as their friends and you're thinking you know she doesn't care about that all she cares about is that you're in the moment when you're with her or with him or whatever your sexual orientation is and you know and I think that's all we need is to kind of remember that when you're with people, you're in that moment with them. You know, you put the phone away, you kind of, I kind of always lived my life online because I was trying to find out who I was. So the podcast was helping and stuff like that. And in a way I forgot to be in the moment with family. I kind of lost track of who I was kind of thing because I was trying to find it. It's, it's a really bizarre kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, you do some amazing stuff like, you know, you can drink pints for your toes, you can brush your hair with your toes. You know. Do you think, I mean, this kind of thing, because this is all you've ever known, that, you know, to have an amazingly beautiful dexterity with your feet, do you think it's easier for you to learn these kind of skills because you've never known, you've, you know, it's harder for somebody who's maybe lost an arm, who's had the understanding of an arm if you know what i mean I, absolutely I, it's a difficult absolutely. kind of question to kind of well, phrase no, you, without offending no 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 no. there's actually two there's two really good answers to that question the first uh, answer is and i and, and this is again just a, a quick anecdote um i i always seem to get awards and i understand that i was doing things that were extraordinary um you know i got what was called the mount royal college which is where i went to broadcasting school the Mount Royal College Most Distinguished Alumni Award, the first ever award that was given in 1983. The college at that time was 73 years old, and it had all those years of students to pick a worthy recipient of this prestigious award, and yet I got it. I was 22 years old. So I'm on stage getting the award, and I'm sitting next to a patriarch of the educational system of Alberta, Canada. His name was Grant McEwen, and actually a university is even named after him. At that time on that stage, he was probably about 80 years old, and I was sitting right next to him. And uh, as I got my award, came and sat back down, he leaned over to me and he said, how does such a young man with so many challenges become so successful at such a young age? And my answer was, because I didn't know what I couldn't do. When you don't have a template, when you can't follow a mentor, when you can't look it up because there was no internet when I was a kid, you invent yourself. You learn how to be creative. 
And that is the most amazing source of confidence. But I talk back about this idea of the mindset of not having an actual handicap. In fact, that video that I'm asking people to have a look at, the Rio Paralympics video, it's actually known on YouTube as the Rio 2016 Paralympics trailer, Yes, I Can, because the soundtrack is to the music of Sammy Davis Jr. and the words of Yes, I Can. It's a mantra. But more than anything, what I believe is it all depends on what we need to have happen to us to appreciate our lives. One of my dear friends lost his legs in a mountain climbing accident. His name is Warren McDonald. We became friends by coincidence. We were working at the same convention together. He's a professional speaker as well. And he lost his legs when he was like 29 years old. He was trapped for three days in a creek after a rock slide. And that's how he got pinned. And the boulder had to be taken off his leg and his legs amputated. And as Warren would say, he spent three days praying to have that boulder come out and his life saved. And if he lived, he would never, ever live a negative life again. Now, that's an extreme example. But when we look at so many people of success, almost all of them have a similar story of where they were in such a spot that all they did, and this doesn't have to be religious, all they wanted, all they prayed for was to be successful. Well, you can't bite that theoretical hand. If you find that you've had an opportunity to be successful, always, always appreciate it. Never turn your back on it. I think that's what part of celebrity bothers me. And I've met enough of them that I know what not to be. And that is, if you're going to be a celebrity, at least give of your time. Because if it weren't for the people that made you a celebrity, you wouldn't be one. I love that. I just love how your attitude to life is just kind of, yeah, you don't think you can do it? Just watch me. And I think right. this is why people like you should be celebrities. Not these kind of idiots who are famous because they're they're promoting how thick they are or they're promoting because some their dad left them a hundred million or something like that so they can flash silly pictures of themselves in the latest gear on instagram and become celebrities and air quotes but you know these are like people like yourself who give back and help people and un help others understand about life and becoming better humans they you are the sign of people that I wish we had as celebrities that would help today's kids. Can you go into a little bit about how you learn a skill? So say, if we go back to the time you were t you know, learning to sew on buttons or learning to play the drums or the trombone or all these amazing things you can do, can you give an example of how you'd learn a new skill? Is it just trial and error? Or do you have a kind of structured way of, you know, like driving or... Yeah, your approach to something. How would you go about that, learning well, a new skill? Yeah, the first thing that I want to tell people, and this is not good advice, it's just being honest. I've never set a goal for my life ever. I mean, ever. I, I, I was always responsive to what was going on at the time. And when I talked about sewing those buttons on that rag, uh, there was another element. My dad was a mechanic. He'd bring home nuts and bolts from work. And I would screw them on and off and on and off for hours at a time. So my, we've we already covered this. My toes became very dexterous. So when I was about seven or eight years old, I wanted to start building models, you know, cars, airplanes, trucks, lorries. I wanted to build those. So mom bought me one. And I would sit in the living room and it would take me almost three times as long to build a plastic model. You know, those old school ones with the glue and the, the plastic pieces you had to glue together, not the self-stick kind or the snap-together kind. And I got into really ornate models. 
And, you know, you'd think, well, maybe I could do that for a living. Well, no, I did that for a while. And then and then music came into my life. So I, I developed this idea that everything that needs to be done perfectly takes repetition, takes practice. I know this sounds so logical, but here is what I think divides the winners from. And I don't mean the word loser like loser, but the winners between the winners and losers is the winners realize you can't be successful unless you put in the work. And when you put in the work, you then start to recognize that it not only becomes a repetition habit, but it becomes an attitude habit. See, to me, attitude is a habit. It's not a positive or a negative. It's a regular everyday habit. So when we want to learn something new, first of all, we have to have a desire. Second of all, we can't beat up on ourselves if we don't master it right away. That's that fast food idea before, you know, instantaneous success is impossible. But more than anything, we have to decide for ourselves, is it giving us something? Because if we're getting angry at it, you know, if we're trying to build a cabinet and after five or six tries, we just can't do it. Well, you know, don't keep trying to get even madder. Either reset yourself and start over again or get someone else to build it for you. You know, not everybody's going to be good at everything. I don't do all of the tasks around our home. I don't climb up on the roof and clean the gutters. That's just not a good idea, right? Um, I don't put up the Christmas lights. I don't decorate the Christmas tree. Those sorts of things are what my wife does, but she doesn't do them because I can't. In fact, to go back to another thought from before I forgot about, many times my wife has been asked in the media, what attracted you to Alvin? And her answer, I love this answer. She says, because he vacuums. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an example of some of these things that we need to master aren't always going to take us to the, um, you know, to the Olympics or to the world championship or to the recording studio. But that's a very vital thing. We don't need to be the best to enjoy the activity. And more than anything, we need these activities. We need to slow down. Actually, I think this pandemic, other than the obvious scary part, is a really good thing because people are too busy too many things going on, too much multitasking. The mind and brain weren't designed for that. They were designed to focus on one task, one issue, one habit, one uh, a hobby, one activity at any given time. And as Malcolm Gladwell, the author, says, 10,000 times practicing something will make you an expert, guaranteed. Because this comes from your philosophy, doesn't it, of you don't see obstacles, you see possibilities instead. Is that yeah. the danger that we assign a purpose to ourselves? You know, like, mm. I'm good at X, so I'm going to do the Y. You know, is that a danger that we kind of then pigeonhole ourselves into certain areas and then we kind of put a limit on what we can achieve rather than your way of doing it where, you know, you just learn the skills that you need as you progress in life? What's your views on purpose and having a vision and a mission and you know you hear all these kind of other gurus talking about do you think it's a good idea to kind of have a gut to push that on people you know what's interesting is this this is uh something that i i never talk about in public not because it's not a good topic but because it's something that is so incredibly personal and my son you know obviously he's had his own challenges in his life having a dad without arms and going through a divorce with uh, his mother, which is not my wife now, by the way. Uh, his mother had mental health challenges. She was schizophrenic. She was bipolar. She had a bunch of issues that showed up after he was born. So in other words, when he came to live with me, it was to rescue him, not because I won a custody battle, all right? She was just not a healthy person. 
the point of that is my son lived in my shadow. I made a slight reference to it earlier that I'm a bit of a celebrity. It's true. Uh, not the kind that we were just mentioning that I could be and should be. And I agree with you. I'd love to be famous for actually having done something that can inspire people, not just have my face on a poster. But the fact of the matter is my son grew up in an environment where because of television, telethons that I've done, I've raised over $225 million for charities that I've done on telethons and different fundraisers. So I'm always getting the media spotlight. Like today, I'm getting an interview done. He grew up with that. Um, we went through a tough patch where he was trying to find his own identity. And I'll always remember this. One point, he just freaked out. And he didn't, I didn't even know where this was coming from. But he said, does it ever occur to you that I don't need to be famous like you? That a lot of people just live in the shadows and they're okay with that. That was brilliant. Because he's doing exactly that. He doesn't need to be famous. He doesn't need to be out there with a million friends. He's happy with his mundane nine to five job. In fact, his mundane job was even better than the one he had before, which was managing a 42 story office tower as a power engineer running the building. Because guess what? He was on 24 hour call. He hated that job, even though it paid him really well. But the responsibility he had was huge. But more than anything, he never got to live life because he was always working. And that's what I think is really hard for people is sometimes their job defines them or their hobbies define them or their athleticism defines them when the reality is, hey, whatever, man, whatever you want to define you, but then you have to own it. OK, so at the end of the day, we need to be willing to concede. Not everyone's going to be, you know, Bill Gates or Bill Clinton or Gandhi or you know, Nelson Mandela. I mean, we're all going to follow our bliss, right? Follow who we were meant to be. But sometimes you don't have to change the world. You can just change your little corner. I love that because that's what I love about your talks is you go into areas that most other people shy away from. You know, mm. they kind of, they go into the what sells books, but you go into the nitty gritty and you really explain things and you go into the sort of dark corners and light up things for people that maybe have never seen that or heard that it's possible. I mean, what went through your mind when you found out you're going to become a father? What did you want for your son? And did you ever worry about any kind of, it might be a difficult to talk about, but I mean, was there any issues where you worried about disabilities with, with your mm. son? or Because mm. I've, I've friends who have had, you know, kids with Down syndrome or they've kind of passed on genetic sort of conditions. Did you worry about that at all? And anyway, I know you can't, it can't happen in thalamolamide, but I mean, were you worried about any sort of issues with your child? Yeah, well, first of all, <laughs> uh, it's funny you bring this question up because um, I just actually put out a, a, a new blog on my website. At, at Again, it's alvinlaw.com. The newest one uh, starts out with a, a question. What are the two most life-altering words in human language? And those words are, I'm pregnant. Those words coming from, obviously, a woman alters the future of every couple, whether they're homosexual, heterosexual, bi, whatever. When you find out you're going to have a baby, two things in my mind, talk about honesty now, Ian, occur. Either you're happy or you have just lost it. I lost it. I was in a relationship that was terrible. By the way, she was really good looking. And I was sucked into the vortex of a 24-year-old with no brain, right? Thinking with a little head. And uh, she got pregnant. And that was not meant to happen. And because we were both from pretty Christian homes, we then were made to get married. 
after the child was born. The, the, the relationship was doomed right from the very beginning. So as my wife would tell my son, wrap it up. So, you know, seal that sucker shut because we don't want any grandchildren. And she means it because unless you want to have a child, I mean, I'm not trying to be miserably uh, insensitive here, but how many people do you know whose kids weren't planned? And that's just the way the whole child is raised. You know, it, it's unfortunate that that's a reality of our time. But I think if we do want a child and if we celebrate the words I'm pregnant, what more lucky could a little baby and child be? See, there's the difference in my personal life. I'll answer your actual question about my son in a, in a brief second here. But remember, I was given away by my birth family. And I did not know why until I met my birth family in 1993. That's a whole other story. But the fact of the matter is my birth family were not suited to take care of me. Where my foster family and my origin, eventually my forever family had the time, had the dedication, but more than anything, celebrated my birth. Where the rest of the world was calling us a curse so my son it was very very tricky because he wasn't celebrated per se but when i held him for the first time i immediately reverted to the thought christ i wonder how my mom and dad must have felt the first time they held me huh can you imagine because we are in a world that expects the perfect child you know no down syndrome no autism no medical defects and then we have them and we're somehow shocked and dismayed. I get that. But this is the perfect time to bring in the expression that either you love or you hate. It is what it is. You know, it's a perfect expression. It is what it is. My son was born into an unhappy home. It is what it is. We escaped the brutality of it. Thank God for that. And he was raised in a world where he learned to be himself. Is he perfect? Far from it. But then I'm not either. This is very important, Ian. I want to make sure everybody understands. I haven't been coming to this today or any interview that I do from a place of ego. This is a place of gratitude. If I can uplift anybody who's listening to take a look at your child, no matter what their imperfections, and say, it is what it is. But more than anything, we are only given what we are given to handle. Most people underestimate their capacity to raise a good, solid child because of their own inadequacies in their heart. But the fact is, parenting, there is no manual. You just have to be the way I've been talking this whole interview. Just try to be who you are and give your children the values and the morals that really we all know are the right and true way to live life. And then once they turn 18, cut them loose and see what happens. I love that because that's the kind of message I wanted to give to people was it doesn't matter what you have or you don't have or the condition you've, you've assigned from birth it doesn't you know i've i work with phd students and i see kids with bad upbringing no parents or mental health conditions or you know like disabilities of all sorts and they come away and they you know they're some of the smartest people in the world or they're some of the nicest people in the world or they're just amazing human beings and i think that's what we forget i mean my sister's got three kids and I didn't know pure love like that could exist until I held them oh. you know, as, a, as the uncle. And it was like, oh. you know, they all have these weird and wonderful things, like their own unique characterness. But each of them just blow me away at how they see life, how they develop, how they do things. And I'd love to be a father at some point, but it's that moment into it. It's like they are what they are. It is what it is, as you say. It's we We kind of... 
you know, oh, they've got this wrong with them. No, they don't. They're just themselves. You know, it's, and that's what I love about your your material. I love about your content is you make people understand it's okay to accept people as they are, and to love and to sort of highlight and accept what we are, but not just accept it, but to actually put it out into the world and kind of be open with it and because i think that's what we life is all about is making the world a better place than you found it you know to give to find that thing about you that's unique and give it into the world and help and i think that's why you're transforming life so much is you're making people realize that that thing they hate that thing they see is inferior is actually the thing that makes them them and it's a, it's a amazing gift that you have you know it's, it, i, I want to add one more thing here i know we're running short on time here ian but I, I had a profound experience that you cannot ever, ever possibly plan. And I'm not name dropping because you're in the UK because I realize this goes global. But a few years ago, I was in London and I was staying at a hotel across from Hyde Park. I was uh, speaking at an event and my wife came with me on that event because we were actually in the country for over two weeks doing a bunch of different speaking engagements around the, uh, the country. And we went into Hyde Park because of the obvious reason that it's just a really lovely park, although it's not really as beautiful as it used to be. And there's, of course, a little corner there called Speaker's Corner. Well, I had to go check that out. And I can't lie, I was shocked at the sheer number of immigrants in Hyde Park compared to what I remembered from when I went there the first time when I was six years old to go home to visit my father's family, my mother and father, because my dad was from England. I remember Hyde Park being completely different back in those days. Now, that's a point of real contention in England. I understand that. We, we and I'm being we as a, as a colloquial, we, some of us have issues with the way the world is going. And some people that I don't want to identify seem to be wanting to blame the negativity of immigration. When the reality is the world is shifting, borders are shrinking, and we're becoming so much more global. I've accepted that. In fact, I've embraced it because I think people are people all over the planet. And as I'm walking through Hyde Park, I walked past a bunch of people. They were wearing hijabs. There were about three quarters of the people there were men. There were a few women. But I noticed this one guy who shouted out to me. He said, sir. And I stopped and I wasn't sure what to do. I was a little uncomfortable. I was out of my element, out of my comfort zone. He goes, can you come here for a second? And I said, sure. He, and then he asked the question. Everybody asked the question. What happened to you? And I told him the story. And then he took off um, a glove he was wearing to reveal an amputated hand. It had been cut off in one of those countries that cuts off hands because that's their justice. Okay. He only had one hand on his other arm. And he looked at me and he said, you weren't, you didn't get them cut off? No. He goes, I did. I said, oh yeah, what'd you do? He goes, I don't know. All I know is, and then he looked at me and he got tears in his eyes. He says, you've never had arms. No. How can you smile so big? I said, because I've accepted that this is who I am. The guy started to cry. He came over. He asked if he could give me a hug. I gave him a business card and he kept in touch with me for two or three years, sending me a note every now and then saying, thank you for A, not judging me because I'm from another country, but B, reminding me that while I had one hand cut off, I still had the other. How can you have a moment like that and not feel pride in who you are? 
So I meant what I said. You don't change the world, the world at a time. You change the world a person at a time. And is that your sort of attitude towards like prosthetic limbs and you know sort of artificial limbs and stuff like that? You yeah. I mean, do you just not like them because of the, the fact that you've accepted who you are and you don't want to change that? Or what would you say if they offered like limbs, you know, like arms later down the life? Yeah, yeah. that's a good. But you said it. You yeah. said it was like actually a blessing. You know, like you yeah. believe God made you this way, be, you're happy almost in the way? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, if you lived in my house, you would also understand something else. Uh, both my mother and my wife now, Darlene, are people that were what I would be kind of describe as very spiritual people. Mother came from a place of God and the Bible. My wife comes from a place of not being a religious believer, but being a woman of deep faith and spirituality because she studies various religions. And she's also a feng shui master, which means that she uh, practices as a master teaching people how to do feng shui, which is designing their layout in their homes, decluttering, giving themselves more space. The point of that is that in that world, there is an acknowledged belief that some, and get ready to roll your eyes, some people believe that we have multiple lives and that we actually pre-choose the one that we're going to get. I don't like that one myself. But I hear where it comes from. The fact of the matter is my arms never grew. So my brain does not have any kind of image in it of arms. All it has is an image of my feet. And because my feet are so productive, it also allowed me to celebrate them because of the culture in my home. When I reach across the table, I want your listeners to visualize this and hold my wife Darlene's hand. Some people go, "Ooh, that's gross. Other people go, isn't that beautiful? While the rest of the time, my wife is simply holding my hand. When you have a limb that has nerves and feeling, you can feel that energy flowing through it. When you have an artificial limb, as functional as it might become, it is fake. There is no connection with the brain, even with the new technology. But having said that, I'm also working with a university in Belgium and Harvard University in a project together studying the new neural pathways to the brain to implant remote devices to use the newest generation of artificial arms for wounded warriors. I go to Harvard, I go into an MRI machine, they see my brain, they watch its functionality, they track my use of my feet, and catch this one, Ian. When I was in an MRI machine doing uh, reactionary videos with my toes and a VR set of goggles, I was clocking times using my foot that was half a second faster than people reacting with their hands. So when I talk about this being my normal, not only is it that, but it is my extraordinary. Because that's what I find amazing about you is that there's just that lust of life there. And because I work in a university as well, I kind of see what people are working on and all these new kind of things. But I really liked that part about your videos where you said, you know, this is who I am. Why would I change this? I was put this way. You know, I don't have any reference points of having the arms, but I make my life as best as I can and I enjoy life as much as possible. And I find these unique people who are attracted to me for me. And, you know, you you blew me away with your videos, your content. And I mean, I really want to have you on again. I know we're over our time limit already, but you've kind of, I don't think we've even scratched the surface and finding out the amazing person that you are. But, 
even just you know it's not just so much your story it's how you can help other people learn to accept theirs and i think that's such a brilliant thing that you do but what would you well you know i want to add and i'd love to be on your show and do a a part two i by the way i want you to hear this and i want your audience to hear this i am simply sharing the gift that i was given my mom used to say alvin someday you will understand why and she used this okay she was religious she would always say someday you're going to realize why god made you this way and then you're going to realize god gave you a huge gift and you can't keep a gift to yourself you have to share it so what would you say then to those listening who can't accept something about themselves just now say they have something really dark or they have something that's really holding them back right now like what would cha- like say it's a challenge what would you say to them to start working on that thing that's holding them back so first of all monitor what you have as an intake regarding information all right uh, i think the internet is a bad thing on occasion because it brings together some bad habits and some bad actors but it's also a remarkable resource for finding things to read I would recommend that you scour the internet to read while you have the time stories of people that have come through huge challenges to become who they are. I mean, you know, Nelson Mandela alone, uh, Sammy Davis's book, Yes, I Can. It's a really amazing book. But whatever it is your taste, read something that is not fiction. Read something nonfiction, the story of achievement, the story of people that have faced huge odds and become something even bigger. Michelle Obama's new book, Becoming, is remarkable. In other words, find stories from other people that have been there, done that, and then make those stories relatable to you. And I don't want to promote this myself, but look at my website. Check out my videos. You've you said this, but more than anything, I mentioned this once before, and it'll help when lockdown is over. But I really will say this and repeat myself. If you need a dose of reality of how lucky you are, go somewhere where people aren't right? Go somewhere where people have a tougher go. Go somewhere where people are facing even bigger obstacles. Go visit a a pet shelter and hug a cat or pet a dog. In other words, give yourself relevance that isn't based on who you see in a mirror, but how you feel as the person that you'd like to become. I love that. It it blows me away. This is why I love this podcast. It's getting to meet Mm. amazing people like yourself. I mean, is there anything that you've got coming, um, like talks you've got coming up? I mean, why would you like to write another book or? I am writing my book. I I told you the uh, the, the working title is, is Insecurity. I'm working on that. But the irony of my work in all these years I've been doing it is I'm not uh, a public speaker. Okay, so I don't book halls or not now for sure, but I don't book public events where people can get online and uh, take in my show, unfortunately. Now, that may change now, depending on how things look. But what I would suggest is, you know, I'm on all the social media platforms. The only one that I don't really use, it's personal for me, is Instagram. Uh, Not because I'm against it. It's just one of those things if I'm going to divide my time up. So it's pretty much between Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I know I'm an old guy. But the reality is just keep in touch with my materials. Check out my website. Read my blogs. There's, they're all archived there. But more than anything, just keep in touch with me. Ask me to be a friend. Whatever you want. And then keep in touch with my life. And who knows? I may end up doing something that I've never done before. I, I'm not saying I will. That may turn out to be a public show. I don't know what that's going to look like. But at the end of the day, 
I want people to understand I'm not the only one with an inspiring story. There is a reason why there's a self-help section in our library. It's not because so many people are so messed up. It's because there's so many people that have been there and figured out how to not be. And that's why I want to share your story. It's it's not so much just your story. It's the the methods behind it. It's the protocols behind it. It's the life. It's a way that you look at life differently and teach people how they can learn how to do that. You know, you, this is why I want the podcast to be is like a guiding light, a, re, a set of reference points of mm. yes, here's some amazing people. Get inspired, but use it to change your own life to become the person that you want to be, or learn about yourself or develop yourself and you give that gift to other people and i was so glad we made the connection well that's it for another week and thank you for listening it's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.